Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Welcome to NeuroPodCases. My name is Ali Baksh and I am a specialist neurosurgical trainee. With me, I have the esteemed Mr. Carlton Bland, a spinal surgeon here at the Walton Centre in Liverpool. Mr. Carlton Bland, welcome. Well, hello there. Thank you very much for asking me to uh, do another one of these neuro podcasts. I think it's a, a great resource to use. Um, so, yeah, so I think that uh, there's been quite a bit of demand generally from non-specialists, but also perhaps from other physiotherapy uh, colleagues and neurology colleagues uh, to talk through some common spinal conditions that w- might warrant an operation. Um, and so I think that we thought probably a good way to cover this was to do perhaps a small clinical scenario and just really unpack the concepts uh, as we go along. Excellent. So I have one for you prepared. I prepared earlier. Excellent. So we, <laughs> we have a 60-year-old lady who presents uh, to A&E, the local trauma centre, with acute onset lower back pain on a background of six months of lower back pain. Now this pain, she says, radiates down to both legs, down to the ankle, and she's noticed that twice over the past 24 hours she's lost control of her urine, and she's a bit worried about this naturally. Now, what are the immediate thoughts you're having there in the cartoon land? Yeah, so uh, uh, a acute and chronic uh, episode of back pain, there are a number of pathologies that we need to think about, and as neurosurgeons, obviously, we're going to think about you know, common things being common, we're going to think about osteoporotic fractures, we're going to think about uh, potentially uh, disc disease, uh, but we, we shouldn't also think about other things which are felt as retroperitoneal and possibly back pain. So we need to think about you know kidney dysfunction, we need to think about AAA um, in some of those demographics. But very much with my spinal head on, if, if there is back pain associated with radiation and, and potential radiculopathy, um, I suppose that we need to really try to uh, unpack some of those things. So uh, in, in my point of view, I think the first thing that you know, the general emergency room uh, doc should be thinking about is to really think about the back pain. And we have this red flag systems for back pain, don't we? So um, certainly this lady's over 55, so already a red flag. And what, you know, what's this flag system about? Well, really red flags are flagging up, could this be a sinister uh, pathology? And obviously in someone of, in their 60s, we're thinking, could this be metastatic? Could this be a bony problem due to, to a cancer? Um, so we need to try to see if there are any associated signs, I think, with this, uh, this three month history of back pain. So we'd ask about the classic kind of B symptoms, if you like, of weight loss, night sweats, anything that really lends credence towards perhaps a neoplastic view. Uh, it may be that in that uh, history that we take that we, that we actually identify that she's a chronic steroid user, uh, someone who's perhaps low body weight, someone who lives in the northwest of England where vitamin D is uh, uh, at a premium. Uh, and actually this could just be a standard osteoporotic, although she is a bit young for osteoporosis. Um, in terms of trauma, she could, this, this could be uh, perhaps uh, an acute back pain from, a, from, from trauma and, and, the, and the low grade back pain may not be contributory, it may just be standard kind of back pains. And I think um, when we're thinking about traumas, if there's no good history for it, you do have to think about things like, you know, things like domestic violence. You know, this is a, a presentation of potentially other uh, issues at home um, so that's the sort of back pain history. You know, back pain, back pain. Where is it specifically? Let's look at the historical uh, things. You know, the, the sort of classic pain history. What were you doing when it happened? You know, oh, I coughed and I sneezed and I got back pain. Well, that looks like an insufficiency fracture. That looks to be 
pain from uh, weak bones. But there could be um, uh, other things that you, you ask in your pain history, what makes it better, what relieves it. Uh, a mechanical uh, back pain, like a broken bone, would be relieved by recumbency, by lying down, taking the pressure off the system. Whereas a neoplastic uh, history tends to be a very slow, gradual building up and no real relieving or exacerbating factors. Um, and then we obviously you've mentioned about the radiculopathy, the, the pain shooting down the legs. Um, and that is uh, very useful because that suggests that there is obviously some compression to the nerves and, and uh, the central nervous system, so the brain and spinal cord, don't feel pain when they're compressed generally. So we'd say that if this person's got radiating leg pain, we're thinking of a lumbar pathology. And as neurologists and neurosurgeons, when we're given a clinical case, we think about one, where is the lesion? Using our wiring diagram of where could it possibly be? And then two, what's the nature of the lesion? I think the history that I've mentioned kind of gives us an idea of the nature of the lesion. If there's been a temperature, could it be a spondylodiscitis? If there's weight loss, could it be cancer? If there's trauma, maybe it's a broken bone. Um, and then we're trying to localise the lesion. And I guess if it's a painful radiculopathy shooting down towards the ankle, this looks to be a lumbar pathology to me. Uh, to the ankle, obviously everyone's wired up differently, but pretty much that would be an L4 type distribution. To the great toe, L5. To the little toe, um, S1. So already we're kind of painting a pen picture in our mind. You know, is this, is this a lumbar fracture or disc? Or, or possibly tumour that's causing these symptoms. Now you mentioned bilateral. Um, now that does, uh, for most uh, spinal surgeons, make our ears prick up a little bit because um, a bilateral presentation is often worrisome because the majority of, say, disc prolapses you get tend to be paracentral, tends to be to one side and presents as a unilateral radiculopathy. If we're getting bilateral symptoms, then we're talking about a pathology that's consuming potentially the whole of the canal. Um, and if there's something pressing on the whole of the canal, that's going to press on all of the nerves. That horse's tail that hangs down the corda equina. Uh, why do we worry about that? Well, obviously, it's presenting as pain, which is nasty. Uh, but pain, you know, kind of won't kill the patient if, if, if I was to be a bit flippant. It's certainly a cause of a huge amount of, of pain, misery, loss of ability to work. Uh, and so we shouldn't uh, ignore pain. But actually, if we're getting bilateral pain, I'm worried about the autonomic nerves and I'm really thinking about um, the nerves which have the responsibility for urogenital function, bladder and bowel. Um, and uh, you've mentioned incontinence. It's very common that we get the referrals from our primary care uh, colleagues, incontinence. But yeah, there's a lot of incontinence out there and we need to try to drill down about what types of incontinence. Is it an incontinence that happens every time she coughs or sneezes? And she's had you know a number of children well that's pretty a weak pelvic floor that's a mechanical uh, stress incontinence is it an incontinence that she's been feeling where she knows she needs to go for a wee and oh, 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 but doesn't quite get there and can leak well that's a, a overactive bladder isn't it that's more of a uh, a kind of um, urge incontinence no what we're looking for i think in terms of incontinence is painless and no sensation no messages to the brain that you need to wee and then a big gush of fluid, you know, a surprise, a, so a proper painless urinary retention with incontinence. That is the incontinence that we um, that we particularly uh, are interested in because that is probably compressive compression of the nerves. Um, that said, very severe acute pain is recognised to cause painful urinary retention just because uh, part of our pain response is actually to tighten those sphincters. Uh, and that can lead to to you know retention and, and, and leakage of urine. 
gosh, that was a lot. <laughs> I said a lot there, didn't I? But that, th those are the first sort of things I think about back pain. It's the nature of the lesion, uh, the history in particular to try and think of the of the particular pathologies that could be causing it and the localization. Uh, and then specifically as regards to ridiculous symptoms, is it unilateral? That's less worrying. If it's bilateral, that is worrying. Uh, and then uh, the urine incontinence certainly um, would make me worry about the quadroquinus syndrome. So the key message there is a wide differential at the beginning with yeah. multiple pathologies. Okay. So in further questioning, uh, this patient reveals that she was uh, making her bed and she bent down to pick up, uh, pick up something and that's when the acute pain started. Um, this was the similar kind of pain that she'd had for many years and she had a scan a couple of years ago which had GP organised which shows her, her nerve root was a bit trapped. That's all she remembers. Mm. Since then, she's uh, been incontinent twice, which, which we mentioned, and that was just uh, she was watching TV and she hadn't noticed, but there was uh, a urine everywhere. So she assumed she was uh, passing urine, but with no sensation and, and no pain or, or any urgency below. Uh, apart from that, she doesn't have any fever, not uh, constitutionally unwell, otherwise medically fit, apart from these symptoms. They've stopped her from walking on her own, and she needs assistance from her husband, who she's come in with, um, and uh, she's really worried about not being able to walk again, which of course is a big worry for her. At the moment on examination, uh, she generally looks comfortable, although uh, very still, and movement exacerbates any back pain. Mm -hmm. um, her reflexes in her uh, L3, L4, right and left limb are hyperreflexic. Um, she's lost um, ankle reflexes in her left uh, ankle, and Babinski is upgoing. She um, has any uh, insensation uh, or lack of sensation in the L3, L4 distribution in the right and left leg. Um, so with these findings, what are you thinking now? So that, that would be an atypical presentation for a pure lumbar quadroquina. I, I think the history is very typical, uh, but the findings would not be. I mean, some patients are constitutionally hyperreflexic, and so whenever I'm told something like this, I need to know all the reflexes, but pretty much an upgoing Babinski is uh, an abnormal uh, finding. And so um, I think that she certainly merits from the bilateral radiculopathy that, that, as I mentioned previously, could only be explained by a low motor neurone uh, type presentation. She would need a lumbar uh, MRI scan, I think, in terms of the next investigation. But certainly given the upper motor neurone, I would ask for whole spine. We routinely, not commonly, but we do routinely find cervical disc disease that presents as bilateral weakness and urinary issues. Uh, and in terms of hierarchy, which is the most important? Well, if we prone a patient for an hour and a half to do a lumbar disc and they've got a huge cervical disc, actually we could create a secondary injury. So um, I would argue this patient should get a whole spine mid-sagittal. So you don't have to do all of the sequences, you know, which can take 40 minutes, an hour to do a whole spine. Uh, a single mid-sagittal sequence would tell you if there is a massive, you know, cervical disc or if they've got a, uh, a big syrinx or some other unexpected finding. Um, so that would be my next uh, sort of, uh, because hyperreflexia, not going plantars, is not the sort of classic thing you'd expect with a quarter equina. I guess the only other other thing is if you had a very high disc and you've got a conus syndrome, you could get a bit of both above motor neuron and lower motor neuron. I don't think I've ever seen a conus syndrome where you have upgoing planters, but I think it's you know it's, it's conceivable that that would happen. Um, I think there's one other, you know, we talk about the triad of quarter equina, we talk about the, you know, the bilateral radiculopathy, we talk about the insensate urinary retention and incontinence, but there's one middle clinical sign that's absolutely key for me which is the well, yeah, what people sort of slightly squeamishly call the the saddle anesthesia yeah the perianal uh, or perineal 
sensory loss. Now, why is that so significant for me? Well, um, we think about chordocrine not as a binary diagnosis of you're either normal or you've got everything. Um, and there is a concept of an incomplete chordocrine where you may have bilateral leg pain and some perianal sensory loss, but you haven't lost the bladder function yet. Um, and also there's a concept of the corda equina in evolution, that you might get a, a biggish disc that squashes one nerve root, a bit more comes out, you get both nerve roots, a bit more comes out and you lose everything. And you actually see this stepwise progression. Um, and so I don't think the PR exam, and there are a couple of papers looking at, looking at anal tone, does it affect decision-making for surgery? No, it doesn't. And so I don't routinely ask for an anal squeeze or, 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 or a PR for that extent. But perianal sensation, pinprick sensation, I think is really useful. And in a large uh, sort of retrospective uh, systemat uh, systematic review of the uh, outcomes of decompression of a, of a slip disc for chordoquina, it was the patient who has the bilateral radiculopathy and perianal sensory loss. They are the patients that do well and have good recovery. The patients who unfortunately have bilateral radiculopathy, sensory loss, and they have lost their bladder, they unfortunately uh, recover much less. Uh, and that's probably because you know, the tiny little thready nerves that confer your uh, bladder function, those, those uh, parasympathetic nerves, are uh, pretty small. Uh, and if you've got enough compression to take them out, then the compression is, 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 is pretty much something the nerves can't come back from. I think if you've got bilateral radiculopathy and maybe some sensory loss, we're, we're showing that there, there is compression, but it's reversible. And so I think a bit like the blown pupil, for, uh, for, for cranial is a really useful clinical sign which tells you you have a time limited, you know, you've got a limited amount of time to, to sort it, but the patient can recover. I kind of see the loss of perianal sensation in a similar kind of, uh, in a similar way to, to that. Uh, it's maybe not quite as dramatic as a blown pupil, but uh, for me it's uh, a useful clinical sign. So the key here is that the PR is used for sensation rather than the anal tone, which is a common misconception. Yeah, I mean, who, who knows what normal anal tone is? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are, I'm sure you can uh, procure uh, anal tonometers, but uh, th there are a number of papers that show no matter what we think, a patchless anus versus a really tight anal squeeze, it doesn't affect decision-making to, to go to theatre. Decision-making is having those kind of features and a positive scan. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and I guess that organically leads us on to how many of these patients have a positive scan? Yes. Uh, so the next question would be about to the timing of scan, the scan sequences that you would like, and um, what does it mean if a patient is scan negative in quotation marks? Yeah, the frauda equina, as it is very, and I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't encourage anyone to use that term. I think it's very, very unfeeling and unkind. Yeah. So I think that everyone should have a T two uh, sag. Uh, and paired axials. I think that is the minimum data set we need. T1s in this case, unless we're looking for cancer, are perhaps less useful, but I guess for this lady in particular, with a slightly strange thing, mm. a T1 would be useful. As I mentioned, for this lady, if you discover upper motor neurone signs, I think you, you just have to go for a, uh, a whole spine, because if you don't get it then, uh, we know that with a, this kind of presentation, bilateral radiculopathy, perhaps numbum, perhaps some incontinence, we know that only one in about 50 scans will be positive. So 49 patients out of 50 who present to this in the emergency room will have no particular uh, compression to their cord. They may have a very small slit disc, but they don't have a huge compressive lesion. And so the first thing the neurosurgeon is gonna say, well, what's happening with the rest of the spine? They're hyperreflexive. Uh, and so I think if you were to be in the emergency room and you see this, I would uh, justify it with the radiologist. You may have troubles, 
uh, because it's an extra 12, 15 minutes to do that mid-sagittal whole spine, but I would, I would push for it because it'll save the patient uh, as well as the, um, as well as the uh, department. Um, when do we do it? That's a very good question. Uh, the evidence for this is not absolutely certain, but there seems to be a truth towards many trapped nerves around the body. Think of the brain, think of the spinal cord with stasis, um, think of acute foot drops. We tend to see that 24 hours is probably uh, the, the timescale at which there's a good improvement if you decompress a nerve. So I think if a patient pitches up, unfortunately, in the midstream with that history, I would, I would get, get the scan that night Sometimes the triaging for this is difficult because in the Cheshire Mersey region that we're in, the Liverpool region, um, most of our uh, hub and spoke hospitals will do scans you know, up until eight o'clock at night. Typically, a lot of these coropriners uh, appear later. And so then there's the slight discussion, you know, when do the symptoms onset and do we scan overnight? Would we progress to surgery? And I'd argue if we have a full house um, of symptoms and we're getting to 12 to 16 hours, I'll transfer that patient for scan. But many of these patients aren't in that position and many of those patients can safely have a scan the next day. And certainly we know from our GERFT review, the uh, Get It Right First Time National Review, which looked at core requirement in specifics, we they don't want you know a neurosurgical centre like Liverpool, which has a three and a half million patient uh, patch. They don't want us to transfer every single core requirement because we would fill our beds. We would have perhaps 20 patients coming for scans and we know that perhaps none of those or one of those might actually require an operation. So we do need to have these scans done locally. Um, and so I think that you know getting the scan first next day, but really I think the timings, as it's still a slight unknown, I think that would be best discussed with the neurosurgical team. Um, but um, I think many, many, many times in the practices we get the scan either that night or you know, the first scan of the morning. Um, so I guess it less asks the question, why do we get all of these patients, these you know, 49 out of 50 patients, pitching up with leg pain and kind of quarter requiring numb bums or, or, uh, or bladder dysfunction? Why do they get that? Perhaps of the small disc. And, you know, we don't really know. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's difficult to, to, to say. And I think that, that, you know, we reach for perhaps pain-related uh, dysfunction. I think there's a lot of that. I think, you know, pain is very, very potent and our bodies don't want to wee. Uh, and they don't want to move our legs um, and so I think that you know pain related behavior and then crossing over perhaps to functional behavior uh, is there I think malingering you know, deliberately trying to trick the doctor into getting medications I think is very very little actually from what I see or maybe I'm very gullible I don't know but I, I, th I think it's, it's quite low my personal pet theory and I think you know this don't you Ali um, my pet theory is actually that radiculopathy is not just compression on nerve it isn't just that it's a mixture of chemical radiculitis. And if we go back to basic principles, um, animal models, if you expose a sciatic nerve in a rat and you give it a squeeze, the animal doesn't act like it's in pain. You get some disc material, you crush it up, you put it onto that nerve and you leave it for 15 minutes and then you touch that nerve and the poor animal sh shows that it's got radiculopathy. And that's one of the these sort of animal models uh, that they use for radiculopathy. So what's that 15 minutes and dismaterial done? Well, it's, it's, it's caused inflammation and it's sensitization. And yeah, does that translate into humans? Well, it probably does. I mean, here at uh, the Walton Centre, we ran uh, a randomized control uh, study looking at comparing microdiscectomy to steroid injection for uh, acute radiculopathy. Now, obviously with a microdiscectomy, you're removing the compression from the nerve. With a, with a, with a root block, you're not 
taking any disc away at all. But what we found at six months is that both groups had about an 80% efficacy rate. 80% of the patients had a massive relief in their leg pain. So how can that work if we're not removing the disc with the root block? It's because we're getting rid of the inflammation with the steroids. So I think the inflammatory gubbins, the inflammatory products, the uh, TNF-alpha, there, there are studies out there infusing TNF-alpha to reduce radiculopathy. Um, I, I think it's the inflammatory gubbins are uh, are at play here. And I think these fraud or equiners are patients often who we do see a small disc prolapse and perhaps they are particularly sensitive to the inflammatory ring rather than the compressive ring. So that's my personal theory and I don't, I don't have anything to substantiate that. So uh, <laughs> It sounds scientifically enough. It sounds plausible, it is, but uh, take it with a pinch of salt. Um, so for these patients who are scan negative, what are the options? Are the options to refer for steroid injection, for physiotherapy, for painting? What would you do if you were the A&E doctor? Yeah, so the A&E doctor, I mean, I think you're in a difficult position in A&E because you've got a patient often in absolute pain uh, and there's a lot of health belief, isn't it? I need an operation to get rid of the severity of pain. And if you're told there's not very much on the scan, they, they ask, well, where's the pain coming from? So it could be the wrong diagnosis. And there are other causes of horrible leg pain. And you know, in the older patient, maybe not a six-year-old, we've got to look for an acute ischemic limb. That can cause a lot of pain, you know, no blood supply. Uh, we can look at the, uh, in someone who's, I often see patients who are very fit and active, perhaps cyclists who suddenly stop their activity can get a huge radiculopathy. Uh, and I think it's a piriformis syndrome. And I see that, we do injections and we see improvements. I know piriformis syndrome is one of these conditions that some people really believe in and some don't. I am a believer uh, in that as a condition. But realistically, those are probably for our pain team colleagues to sort out. Front and center, you need to get the patient sorted out in terms of their pain, their radicular pain. And fortunately, there's a nice guideline to cover this. Uh, so what does that show? Well, it talks about anti-inflammatories. Again, the inflammatory chemical radiculitis Element. So I think that you know ibuprofen, if, if allowed, diclofenac, uh, is a very good starting point. It's a very potent um, for pain relief. It used to be gabapentinoids were their next reach to medication, uh, but obviously there are associations with uh, those drugs being habit-forming, and so that's kind of slipped down the indications, um, uh, and now we're looking at things like duloxetine um, and perhaps nefepam, things that work on the serotonin system. Yeah, amitriptyline would be another one. Uh, that works as an anti-neuropathic and that probably stimulates our paraaqueductal grey and causes a sort of endogenous pain uh, blocking. So I would recommend to my emergency room colleagues that you know you can give some opioids for a short time, something like uh, codeine, I would whack them with some anti-inflammatories and start some duloxetine, but it ain't gonna work straight away and you know we have to cancel the patient. Certainly we recognize that physiotherapy has benefit. There are multiple studies to show it reduces the duration of a radiculopathy. Um, and that's probably through some core strengthening and some stretching because at surgery as you've seen yourself we can see the patients who've got slit discs can get a lot of scar tissue that can cause pain uh, and, and misery in their own right and I think we do break that down with uh, physio and ultimately I think you know, the pain team are there and that there is a whole gamut of other medications that they can use things like ketamine are coming in more and more to help modulate the pain but I think the reassurance actually to know that this is not a huge big terrible slip disc and, and that they're going to require an emergency operation is in itself quite useful. Mm -hmm. I think a, a urinary catheter for some reason urinotension is a fantastic thing. Take it out and see and often when the pain's controlled then the urination will be controlled. And MRI is performed uh, with T2 sequences and the results show that there is a large central L2, L3 disc protrusion which is impacting on the chordae equina itself. So Mr. Carlton Bland, what would be your 
um, actions now in terms of transfer and in terms of any other tests that would be useful, for example, the post void bladder scan. Again, this is uh, to take that final point, a post void bladder scan for me, uh, maybe medico legally nice to have, you know, less than 200 mils, you know, they're okay. Um, I think if we're waiting for them to lose confidence and retain urine, the horse is well and truly bolted. So my, my personal practice, and I think the practice of uh, here, us here at Liverpool is we are moving to really, if this patient has bilateral radiculopathy and number, we would operate. And so actually, I don't routinely ask for post voids. Um, we're often giving them and it's nice objective data, isn't it? And it's nice and reassuring. Um, but I don't think I would use that as a decision for surgery. If they've got a good candidate disc that on the axial section shows that there's no CSF, there's significant compression, they've got pain, what is the advantage in waiting? They've got horrible pain. They've got numb bum, let's just do the operation. I'm not gonna wait and you know, ooh, we can see them in clinic in a week or so. I think I would offer the operation. But is there any merit in waiting? Um, well, there, there may be. I mean, we know from the sport trial back in the day uh, that most slip discs get better. The prognosis for slip disc is very good. 90% of patients will get better in six months. Um, and 75% of those will get better in uh, about three months. So there's a good chance that with just medications and time, things will get better, even with massive slip discs. But I think, again, if it's more than radiculopathy, if we're getting perineal sensory loss, I would transfer to assess. Um, and that's not to uh, do anything other than to confirm and to have the have ability to speak to the patient because obviously what we want to avoid is this patient being sent home from A&E and not triggering a repeat uh, consultation when they go into the full quarter equina. Why is that such a nightmare? Well, um, independently, a patient group were asked to try and define what would be a fate worse than death to you. Any possible, you know, tracheostomies, colostomies, all these kind of things. What would be a set of symptoms for you which is a, a fate worse than death? Chronic pain, no sexual function, no urinary or faecal incontinence, so you can't leave the house, you can't, you know, you can't do anything without worry about being smelly or messing yourself. They were independently the worst set of symptoms, and that is what somebody with a miscorder equina will get. And that's why it's so important. This is all about the patients. You can say that from a medico legal point of view, trust point of view, it's a very expensive one to miss. Uh, you know, NHS litigation at any one point, there's about 20 billion of claims going out. There's a lot of those for a quarter equina. The average payout is a quarter of a million pounds. So we definitely know that as trusts and as the NHS, we don't want to miss them. But I bring you back, you know, to number one, we don't want the patient to have that missed um, that missed uh, quarter equina. And so for patients with big discs, with kind of, oh, isn't she, is she, isn't she, I would bring them to assess because I think realistically, big disc, lots of leg pain. The, I mean, there are risks with surgery, but we have to balance that up with the risk of, of going to a quarter equina. So going back uh, to the clinical examination, and because we mentioned radiculopathy and quarter equina syndrome, how do you clinically differentiate that just on examination? Well, I mean, I don't think you can. I think yeah, quarter equina is radiculopathy, but it's on both sides and it's of all the nerves. Um, I think that, that yeah, to, to reverse and go, well, what, what do most paracentral slit discs look like? It tends to be motor and sensory agreement. So the most common level to get a slit disc is not the 5S1. You kind of think it would be because it's the, the, the most compressed segment. It's probably the full five disc. Uh, we know that the discs can only take so many million cycles before uh, the proteoglycans, which pump them up and keep them turgid, break down, they lose their fluid and the discs start to deflate and become a bit baggy. Um, 
5S1, because of the long spinous pr uh, uh, transverse processes of, of L5, is actually relatively fixed. Very long, strong, powerful ligaments prevent much torsion at 5-1. But 4-5 is the first proper lumbar segment that can take lots of torsion, lots of flexion extension. And so it's there that we see the majority of disc disease. Um, so the disc slips out typically paracentrally. So it doesn't catch usually the exiting L4 nerve root. That's usually quite lateral, not picked. So what we tend to see is that the 4-5 disc with its compression and with its inflammatory gubbins will hit the transiting L5 nerve. And so the L5 radiculopathy shooting down towards the toe is the most common kind of presentation. So we'd like to see motor sensory agreement. So the sensation would be a sharp electric shock, lancinating pain shooting down all the way down the leg to the great toe. And that's pretty preserved. Most patients will describe that to you. They may also lose the sensory modalities. They may have numbness or paresthesia. Um, and they may have weakness. So obviously for an L5, that would be, we would tend to use toe, uh, you know, EHL, extensor hallucis longus uh, function. So in motor sensory agreement, that would look like radiculopathy. There are then specialized maneuvers that we could do. So we could do a straight leg raise. And obviously when you straighten and you flex your hip, those cords running from your leg going up to the back are pulled on and stretched. And that kind of pulls on the nerve over that hump of disc and you could exacerbate it. So you've got Lasergs and you've got braggards where you bend the knee to relieve the pain and then you flex the heel back and re-stretch the, uh, re the nerve and you get another spike of pain. And yeah, that's, that's a very good one to show that that's a, you know, a lumbar radiculopathy, a lumbar disc most likely. Cordocrania will have all of those as well, uh, but it'll be bilateral. So I don't think that clinically uh, in terms of uh, the motor sensory agreement or, 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 or straight leg raises, there's much to add, in my opinion, for chordoaquina. It's really all about the peri perianal sensation uh, for me uh, in terms of the clinical exam. Okay. And practically speaking, how would you perform that perineal examination? Uh, so chaperoned, please, emergency doctors, get a chaperone. Uh, it's an intimate examination. It's not unpleasant and, and uh, the patient will need a buddy, uh, for some psychological support, and you need one for a medical legal support. Um, and I would probably very simply uh, try to get a neurotip. I don't think that we need to test every single modality of that small piece of skin. Um, I think that um, the pain uh, would be fine. I think left and right, you know, we, we think our perineum and our bladder is, is innervated from both the left and right side of the coronary. It may not be, but I think that perianal sensation we often do see will be lost unilaterally on the same side as the disc. And so I think that it's probably uh, a useful thing to do pinprick uh, in the perineal region and uh, outside just perianally and that's that's how I do it so perhaps just one or two pricks I would uh, first give them a reference point back of their leg because obviously our S1s, 2s, 3s, 4s are not dermatomes that usually recognise pinprick sensation and there aren't many there isn't a great sort of receptive feel so you have to show them this should feel normal and then let them know, does it feel the same or is it completely insensate? Um, so that's the way I do it. I wouldn't bother with a PR myself. Um, uh, and that would be my the sort of sum total of my exam. Okay, that's one of the key things that I've learned recently is the examination as a neurosurgeon. And I find it particularly different to how we're taught in medical school. So I thought I'd clarify that for our listeners. Um, and also for our listeners who don't have quadriquine, I hope you never do, how do you prevent a large slip disc? How, what kind of lifestyle do you lead? Are there any risk factors you can avoid um, that can prevent that happening later on in life? Well, absolutely. So there's a, there's a, a great study, I'll have to dig out the paper, uh, I don't have it committed to memory, of yoga teachers and they did a uh, random, they, they, they got 100 yoga teachers and they MR scanned them 
and guess what? Yoga teachers have unbelievable, impeccable discs. They don't seem to get disc disease. Why is that? Well, the principles of yoga are, one, it's all about the core, isn't it? It's about strengthening these long-acting muscles that maintain the lordosis and the shape. And actually, we talk about the discs being shock absorbers for the bones, but what are the shock absorbers for the discs? It is the core muscles. If you have decent tone with your muscles, you bear a lot of weight on those muscles and it protects those discs from abnormal loading. Uh, and that uh, that study of 100 yoga teachers will, I, I think, show that. So I think that, that I think the principles of yoga, good core is there, good posture, which is another thing of yoga, isn't it? Standing up straight, I think, is super important. Certainly, I see lots of super fit marathon runners and horse riders who have loads of disc disease. So I think that regular kind of high impact, bang, 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 certainly would make sense that it's continually loading those proteoglycans. They fracture, they release their water, and their turgor goes down in the discs. So um, I'm not saying don't do running, it's great exercise, but perhaps pick a, a mixture of, of kind of cardiovascular exercises and strengthen the core. So that's the way I think I would do it. Certainly um, the end plates are vascularized, the disc itself has very little, but if you do something silly like smoking and you reduce the, the nutrient supply to every part of your body, you will reduce it to the end plates and therefore you'll reduce the nourishment to the disc. And so smoking is associated with it. And if you are lucky enough to have a very manual job, you will see probably double the population rate of disc disease and, and, and herniated lumbar discs. So pick your pick your uh, job carefully would be uh, my, uh, my advice. Uh, specific occupational hazards, it would seem, if you're a dentist, they get loads of cervical spine disease from persistent um, head, head down. And I see a lot of, a lot of sparkies and engineers uh, and car engineers who do the exact opposite. They're putting their head up uh, and they seem to be holding these abnormal postures uh, for a long time. And they seem to get quite a lot of disc disease. Um, so obviously the lumbar spine flexes to help us walk. The cervical spine allows us to rotate and attend stimuli. Um, but the payoff for that is obviously you get a lot more in the way of, of disc disease. It's a fantastic uh, piece of advice. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, what a fun way to end. Lovely. Well, thank you very much for asking me to speak and uh, good luck out there, guys. And uh, yeah, make sure you, when you think you've got a quiner, make sure you, you, you consider this as a diagnosis, uh, not just for the, your own GMC number, not just for the trust uh, indemnity, but really genuinely uh, for the patient. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.